Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson tells us God has a unique ability to turn bad into good and a negative into a positive, specifically in three distinct circumstances. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship, go to rfamarillo.org. Uh, we're still in a series entitled God is Able. My prayer and my hope is that through this series, whatever is going on in your life, whatever the circumstances, whatever you're facing, whatever the odds are, um, whatever you need God to do in you, for you, through you, with you, that you'll know with assurance, with certainty, and that you can proclaim and confess with confidence God is able. Uh, So far, we've kind of laid the groundwork and the framework for this concept that God is able. It stands on three legs, God's power, God's promise, and us being persuaded that he is able. Last week, we started talking about more specific things that God is actually able to do. God is able to rescue us, even from the consequences of our faithfulness to him. God's also able to restore us uh, when that intimacy and that connectivity with with him kind of separates and becomes severed. He's able to restore us back into that intimacy and connectedness. So this morning, I want to look at a third one, a third ability of God, and that is that God is able to redeem you. God is able to redeem you. This English word redeem really means to cash in or to trade in or to uh, transfer, if you will. So it'd be like, you know, if you're playing with poker chips and You end up winning and you're finished. You want to go cash in those chips. You go to the cashier and you trade in the chips for money. I can remember way back, gosh, 14 or 15 years ago, United used to have this this system that when you'd go buy groceries, they'd give you these stamps and you put these stamps in the little booklet and then when you get a certain number of stamps, you can go and you can redeem those stamps and cash them in for you know, cookware, dishes, whatever. I know one thing we got was the can opener that never worked, by the way. <laughs> but you could redeem those in. And that's, that's what it is. You're trading something you have for something that somebody else has. So you're kind of cashing that in and you've got this transfer. So really what we're talking about this morning is God's ability to redeem what he allows. Because God has a unique ability to take negative and turn it into positive. God has the innate ability to take something that seems bad and is bad and make good out of it. It kind of introduces a question that a lot of people have had for centuries, and it has to deal with why do bad things happen? Why does God allow you know, natural disasters and poverty and sickness and you know, all, all of that? Some keep it very general and say, why does God just allow that in general? Some make it a little more specific and ask, why does God allow these negative things into the lives of believers? Others make it very personal, and maybe this is your situation this morning. Why is God allowing this stuff to happen to me personally and all this bad stuff? The truth is, God has the ability to completely stop every and any negative thing to come into your life. He has that ability. It's like a door 
that if, if evil, if, if negativity, if bad circumstances, situation comes to you, it's like a door that God has the ability that when that starts to knock on the door, he just keeps that door shut and it can't come in. Like that hedge of protection. He has that ability. But the reality is, at times, he opens that door and he allows things to come in. And oftentimes, it's things that we don't want in. We wish he would protect us from those things, but for some reason, he allows those things into our life. And for many of those things, we don't understand the reason why. We may never understand the reason why he allows certain things to enter in. But what we're gonna talk about this morning is God's innate ability to redeem what he allows. So if he allows it, it's for a purpose. You may not know the purpose, you may not like the purpose, you may not understand the purpose, you may not see the purpose in your lifetime, but whatever he allows, he redeems. So this morning, I wanna look at three very specific things that God allows that he will redeem. Here's number one. God is able to redeem your sin. God's able to redeem your sin. By the way, we talk a lot about the word redemption. That comes from the word redeem. That's what it means is to, to transfer. But there are two great forces of God that combine that give him the ability to redeem our sin. And the first is God's power. If you look in Hebrews chapter nine, and by the way, this morning we'll look at several scripture passages so you can kind of keep whatever you're using open. In Hebrews nine, it's talking about the tabernacle and the, the old system. Um, then it, it flows into talking about the blood of Christ and the writer kind of begins to connect these two. But we get some insight about the power of God in redemption. Hebrews 9 verse one says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Just reminds us of this old, old covenant. It was based on regulations and rules and rituals and it was centered in this earthly sanctuary, this tabernacle. Verse nine says that this is an illustration for the present time. In other words, the tabernacle and all the things that are inside the tabernacle are an illustration, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It didn't have the power to bring redemption. Verse 20, this now is talking about the blood of bulls and goats uh, that would be used in sacrifice. It says that this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood of, blood of bulls and goats, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Which jumps us to chapter 10, verse four, where the writer says, but it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he's talking about the necessity of blood to wipe away sin, to bring redemption, but the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient. So it brings us back now to chapter nine, verse 12, where it says that he, speaking of Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now what all this means, what I'm trying to say is that he alone is able to redeem us from our sin. He alone has the power to redeem us from our sin, to remove the stain of sin, if you will. As you know, we're getting ready to, to, to go into a new space on Avondale. Uh, I'm getting excited, just a quick plug. We're making progress, we're getting closer. Still don't have a, 
a move-in date yet, but it's getting closer and closer and closer. So just keep praying that all the little things happening can smooth out and we can get in there. But, but we've been doing working in there, and as a result of that, uh, we stain the carpet in places, paint, grease, whatever. And so what we discovered is not just anything will remove those stains from the carpet. It takes very special cleaners, cleansers and cleaners to get that stuff out of the carpet. That's the way it is with the blood of Christ. Not just anything can remove the stain of our sin to provide redemption. The blood of bulls and goats could not do that. Religion cannot do that. Religious practices cannot do that. Living a good life does not do that. Doing good things does not do that. Nothing can remove the sin of stain except for the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the blood. Christ alone has the power to redeem. So he's able to redeem us in our sin. One is the force of God's power. That joins and combines with the force of God's love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, there's a passage here that really speaks about God's love and God's heart. It also talks about why God is waiting to, to come again or part of the reason why he's waiting. It says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The heart and the love of God to come to repentance. Now, here's another big question that kind of is introduced here. And that's the age-old question of when it comes to salvation, do we have a choice? Or has that choice already been made? The theological term is predestination and free will. We're not gonna get into all that this morning. But I wanna suffice it to say both of those doctrines are in Scripture. But the bottom line is, yes, you have a choice whether or not you're going to follow Christ and give your life to Christ or not. Now, God could have created us with no choice. He could have made us robots. He could have not allowed sin to enter this world at all. And all of us follow Christ because it's just been mandated the way he created us. But out of his love for us, he gave us the ability to, cho to choose. He allowed sin to come into the world so that we would have a choice because he wants us to choose to love him, not to be mandated and not have a choice but to love him. So he allows sin. Also, once he allows sin and we chose sin, which all of us did, he could have left us in that sin and said, okay, you made the choice and so live with the choice or die with the choice. But he didn't. Again, out of his great love for us, he provides a way to bring us back and to redeem us and make us have the opportunity to follow Christ and to know him. He redeems us in that situation. So he offers his son, Jesus Christ, to buy us back. I'm sure you've heard the story of the little red boat. I'm sure some of you have heard that. This boy makes a little red boat and he puts great time and great effort and great craftsmanship to build his little red boat. So he plays with it there in his house, in the bathtub, in his backyard, in his big little swimming pool, et cetera. But he realizes this boat's really made to, to go out into to open water. So he lives close to, to a big lake. So he starts taking his boat out there. And one day the waves turn and the tide turns and the boat just starts going way out into the water and he can't stop it. He can't save it. So it, he watches it as it just disappears out in the water. Well, he's very sad. He's very distraught. He goes home. A couple of months later, by chance, he's 
walking around in his downtown area and he sees this little uh, toy store with a window. And in the window of this toy store is this red boat. And he looks at it really closely and he says, that's my little red boat. So he runs into the store, goes to the store owner and says, that's my boat. I need my boat. That, and the owner says, well, I'm sorry, son, that's not your boat, that's my boat. If you want the boat, you're going to have to buy the boat. So he finds out how much it costs. He runs home. He gathers all of his money and just happens to be the same. Everything he has. So he takes up everything he has and he runs back to the store and he says, here's everything I have to buy this boat back. And so the owner gives him the boat. And as he's walking out the door, the little boy says, this little boat is twice mine. I made it and I bought it back. This is the story of redemption. That God created us. And then we were lost because of that choice to sin. But then God buys us back through the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. And we're twice his. But here's the really cool story about redemption. As we're talking about, he redeems what he allows. In redemption, we cash in. There's a transfer. We trade our sin and receive his righteousness in its place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to be the sin offering, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's an interesting thought. I don't know if you've thought about this. The only one able to redeem our sin is Christ alone because he's the only one without sin. See, if we, we're trading what we have with what Jesus has. So if we trade with anybody else, everybody else has sin. So if we were dealing with anybody else, all we're doing is trading in our sin and getting somebody else's sin, but not with Jesus Christ. With Jesus Christ, we are trading in our sin and receiving his righteousness. We're trading in what condemns us and receiving what justifies us. We are trading in that which keeps us separated from God and receiving that which unites us with God. That's what redemption is all about. And so the point I'm trying to make here on this first one is that God allowed sin to enter the world. He allowed us to sin. But even in that sin, what he allowed, he redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I would just say this morning, if you're here this morning and you've never made that trade, you've never made that transfer, where you said, Christ, I'm giving you my sin so I can receive your righteousness. I pray you would do that before you leave this morning. Talk to me, talk to some of our prayer team uh, later on. We'd love to talk to you about that. But here's the second thing that God's able to redeem, and God is able to redeem your suffering. God's able to redeem your suffering. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul in his suffering. And <clears throat> the reality for us, part of life, all of us suffer. We all experience pain, grief, uh, disappointment, um, burdens, trials, etc. We all suffer. It's just part of life. And we see in Scripture several uh, examples of those that suffer and how God redeems that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's talking about Paul. And in uh, verse 7, 
he begins to tell us about his, his thorn that he has. It says, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. M- many have speculated. Some think it was depression. Some think it was, was bad eyesight, maybe as a result of, of his conversion experience with the light. Some people think it was very severe arthritis because he wasn't able to write his own letters. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. That's the issue. It doesn't matter what it was. What matters is that it was a messenger of Satan to torment him. It was a severe time of suffering for him. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, I don't believe this was just three prayers. I think this was three seasons of prayer. I think this was three different times in his life when he's before the Lord just pleading and begging because that's what that word plead means it comes from that Greek word that we tie in with the Holy Spirit of Paraclete where it comes alongside what he's praying is God please come to my side and my rescue and take this away from me and he's pleading and begging God but in all those times God doesn't do it but in verse 9 it says instead this is what he said my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. He prays that God would take away this suffering. God does not take away the suffering, but he does something even better than that. He floods him with his grace. He allows Paul to see grace in a whole new way. He allows God to experience the grace of God in a way he's never experienced the grace of God before. He really allows Paul to begin to truly understand my grace is sufficient. We see another example though. It's in Joseph. We all know Joseph's story really well. Uh, He's suffering from sibling uh, rejection or or hatred. They throw him in the well, presumably to to kill him or at least let him die. They relent, so they sell him into slavery. Uh, So he's a slave for a while, ends up in Potiphar's uh, household, gets falsely accused of sexual assault, ends up in prison unjustly, stays in prison for a while. He thinks he's gonna get out with the cupbearer and the baker. They forget about him, so he stays in prison longer. All of this suffering, years and years and years and years and years of suffering. But then God redeems that and puts him to the place of second in command in Egypt. We see that example. It's different than Paul's. It's a different type of suffering from Paul, but it's the same story where God uses that suffering and he redeems it. What he allowed, he redeems. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, you can turn back to chapter one. Now we see how this applies to all of us very personally in our suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse three, says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. The Father of all compassion, he comforts us in our troubles. And that word means suffering. He, he comforts us in his sufferings, but he does more than that. He comforts us, why? So that we can comfort others. In other words, he redeems our suffering. He allows suffering in our life, and part of that reason is he's gonna redeem it so that we trade in our suffering for ministry. 
and what we suffer through, now we're able to take that into the lives of other people going through the same kind of suffering and say, hey, this is what God did in me. This is what God can do in you. And now we're able to minister comfort to those that are going through suffering. So here's the deal. God redeems your suffering by enabling you to experience the grace of God more fully, to realize the purpose of God more clearly, and to do the work of God more effectively. God allows your suffering. There is a purpose. There is a reason. There is a redemption. And he will redeem your suffering and enable you to experience the grace of God more fully and to realize the purpose of God more clearly and do the work of God more effectively. What he allows, he redeems. Here's the third one. God is able to redeem your sacrifice. God's able to redeem your sacrifice. We touched on this a little bit last week, but God is able to redeem the consequences of your faithfulness. When you're serving the Lord, when you're faithful to the Lord, you're obedient to the Lord, you're doing what the Lord has called you to do, you're fulfilling your purpose and your role, and you're out there living the life and sharing the word, and you suffer sacrifice. You have to pay sacrifices for that faithfulness, for that obedience. God will redeem that sacrifice. In Philippians chapter one, one more passage we'll look at. In Philippians chapter one, we see Paul making the sacrifice. And of course, you can read through Paul and he's sacrificing all through his, his ministry. But so we see one very specific time in Philippians chapter one, verse 12. He's actually in, in, in prison, if you will. He's in chains, a house arrest. He says now in verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Here's Paul serving Christ, sharing the gospel. Now you would think he's cut off because he's in prison, he's chained. But no, not at all. God's redeeming that sacrifice because now the gospel's being spread even more effectively. And on top of that, all these other brothers who for some reason might have been a little timid, a little fearful to live out their faith, now because of what Paul's going through, they've got the boldness and the encouragement to go out there and live the faith. So God is redeeming this sacrifice. We see it played out again in Acts chapter seven. It's the story of Stephen when he's being stoned. And if you remember, Stephen's a man of faith. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. And he's out, chapter six says, he's out doing miraculous things. He's performing signs and wonders and miracles. And it ticks off the religious leaders of the day. So they go seize him and bring him in and they say, stop it. <laughs> And so Stephen just starts preaching to the Sanhedrin. He starts sharing the gospel with the Sanhedrin. So he continues to speak, and now he's sharing with the very people that are telling him to quit talking about it. So that takes him off even worse. So they pull him out and they stone him. But the result of that in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day, on the day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution broke out against the church. All except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And verse four says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
What happened is through the sacrifice of Stephen, a fire was lit that ignited a revival in that nation where people got fired up and his sacrifice was redeemed and traded in and cashed in for all these other brothers and sisters to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel. It ignited a fire. God redeems what he allows. We see the same thing in Hebrews 11. It's the faith chapter where we know a whole list of people that are commended for their faith. The first part talks about people we know really well, Abraham and Moses and Noah. Toward the end, talks about people, it doesn't even name them. It just said, and others. They don't even have a name in the scripture, but they are ones that sacrificed. They were obedient, they were faithful, and they had to, to pay the sacrifice for following Christ. Some of, some of them, even the ultimate sacrifice of their life. But what's really, I think, the best part of the story is when you get to chapter 12, verse one. It says, therefore, in other words, it's referring to chapter 11, all these heroes of the faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, verse three, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The great visual, it's a great analogy that you have all these heroes of the faith who have sacrificed and paid a sacrifice for their faithfulness, now they're encouraging us that we would not grow weary. 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, it was the inaugural um, uh, women's marathon, first time women could run the marathon. Because up to that point, they thought that the race was too grueling for women to run, they couldn't run that far. But they learned that was wrong. So in the 84 Olympics was the first time the women could run in a marathon. The winner of that inaugural race was Joan Benoit. But that's not the main story. That was not the momentous occasion. The most famous moment came from Gabriella Anderson Scheiss from Switzerland. She finished 37th in the marathon after like, I think, 44 runners. But she almost didn't finish at all because of what took place. Um, this week I, I saw some video of a race and I kind of uh, was able to listen to some video of her story of that marathon and it was very intriguing and very applicable. Uh, it was hot and humid that day and this is her speaking. She said the, the heat and the humidity had drained her and she began to experience dehydration. It got worse because she missed the last water station. And back then, you could only get water at certain stations. She missed the last water station. So her body began to cramp up. She was telling herself toward the end of the race, man, just stay upright and just keep moving because she knew if she ever sat down or stopped, she wouldn't get up. But she said her muscles, they just, they just would not respond. She said if it had been any other marathon, she would have quit. But it's the Olympics. So she really wanted to finish. But as she entered the stadium for the final lap, I mean, she was stammering. She was crossing the, the lanes. If you ever watch it, watch it. I mean, it's this lap. I mean, she's just, I mean, she's literally just stamped. And she can't even, she can't have any balance. She's stammering. She's not walking in one straight line in one straight lane. She's all over the place. Doctors are behind her just waiting for her to fall. I mean, she's staggering everywhere. It reminded me back when I was doing youth ministry, we would do relays. And one of the relays we called Izzy Dizzy. Some of you know what that is. 
but you run down, there's a bat on the ground, you run to the bat, you pick the bat up, and one end of the bat is on the ground, and you put the other end of the bat on your head, and you start going in circles like this, and you have to go do that 10 times, and then you have to go run back and try to tag your relay. Of course, you, you, you don't even know what you're doing. You're kind of staggering all over the place. It takes you about an hour and a half to get to your team. It's crazy. In that scene, it's really funny. In this scene, it's not really funny because this is for real. I mean, that, but that's what she looks like. She's all over the place, not able to finish. But she says this, this is quote. Once I entered the stadium, I just started to fall apart. But I clearly remember the cheering. It was just incredible. I didn't expect that. And that kept me going. Here's the analogy, here's the picture. Those of us that are suffering, those of us that are sacrificing, those of us that are paying a price to follow Christ, and we get weary, we get tired, we begin to think, it's just not worth it. I don't think I can go on. I don't think I can keep doing this. And we get to this end, and we're kind of staggering, and we're kind of stammering. We enter this stadium, and we have this great cloud of witnesses, all of these heroes of the faith that, as it were, just lined up in this stadium, and they're all standing to their feet, and they're cheering, and they're applauding and they're rooting, go, go, go. You can make it. It's worth it. All these that have sacrificed and on the back end saying, he redeemed the sacrifice. It's worth it. Keep going. Oh, can you just imagine the crowd and how that moves us and we just, we keep moving. That's the analogy right here. This is what he's trying to communicate. God will redeem your sacrifice. It's worth it. God's calling us to follow after the one who was greater than us and to live for something that's bigger than us. And if that calling leads to sacrifice, and it will, to some level, to some degree, it will. Just know that God will redeem that sacrifice for his glory, for encouragement of the believers, and to spread the gospel. Romans 8.28 really is true. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord. So if you're suffering this morning, God will redeem it if you'll let him. If your sacrifice is getting heavy this morning, it's okay. He's gonna redeem it. It's worth it. Because he redeems whatever he allows. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks, have a great week.